0: Hello, it's Friday, January the 7th. This is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up, the cancel culture. It's claimed another victim. This time it's the distinguished American author, Norman Mailer. Also, the latest on the extraordinary saga of Novak Djokovic, the world's most successful tennis player, currently languishing in a detention hotel in Melbourne. His parents say he's being treated worse than Jesus Christ when he was put on the cross. Talk about exaggeration. The government's great scheme to rewild much farmland, it sounds great on paper, but the National Farmers Union, guess what? They don't like it very much at all. Also, we're talking about the first case of deadly bird flu has been discovered in the UK in a human being. He lived with hundreds of ducks. But first, it's the cost of living crisis, energy prices, national insurance going up, food prices soaring, That could be the big domestic crisis facing the British government in the year ahead. So the cost of living is going to soar in the months ahead. National insurance payments are going to rise in April, which is the source of a great Tory backlash and a cabinet rebellion. Also, fuel prices are soaring. Food in shops is also rising. The Resolution Foundation has dubbed 2022 the year of the squeeze, saying that those tax hikes... And the energy price cap rise will be a cost of living catastrophe Torsten Bell is the chief executive of the resolution foundation and joins me now Torsten um one thing the government could do of course with the tax hike they could cancel the rise in national insurance which perversely will affect pe- people on lower incomes uh, but it seems the government won't do that would that be something you'd be urging them to do the
1: government very unlikely Andrew to um, get rid of the national insurance rise. One, is very, very expensive. Two, if they wanted to defer the rise to stop that being a permanent cost to the public finances, well, that would mean a big tax rise coming even nearer to a general election. And history says that isn't what tends to happen. So I don't think that's where the action's going to be. I think it's going to be on looking at what help they can provide on the energy bill side of things. And if you look at, I mean, if you look at the, the details of the tax rises the government's bringing in, Overall, they are they're big and significant, around £600 on average per household. They, have, they are particularly heavy for higher earning households, so it is a progressive set of tax rises overall. Those with higher incomes pay more, but there are some unfairnesses because obviously, national insurance isn't paid by all pensioners, and it's not paid by those who don't get their income from earnings. Instead, for example, get it from being a
0: landlord. Yeah. Accepting that, as I think we both do, the the government's not going to cancel the national insurance rise. What do you think they should do with the taxation system to try to help the poorer families or middle income families too are also going to be badly hit, not least by the price cap on the energy cap being lifted. Uh, I think I think decisions on the energy cap are coming up next month.
1: Yeah, I mean I think I suspect we'll actually get decisions from the the government on that in the next. You know, maybe in the fortnight's time, because as you say, the 7th of February is the hard deadline for when the new energy price cap will have to be set by Optum, and they'll want to be out well ahead of that. So keep keep your eye out for like the 20th or the 25th, I'd say, of January for a government decision on on that. On the tax system in general, I mean, it would be a better way to raise the money that they're currently raising through National Insurance to do that by some combination of you know, income tax rise would be fairer amongst people with different kinds of income, or if they were uh, able to look more broadly, I mean, the ONS has put out new data today on the, the scale of wealth and household wealth in the UK and the levels of wealth inequality, and it would be, be better to look at some other elements of taxation around capital gains um, uh, that would take more pressure off income taxes. But we I prefer to see that, but as I say, I don't think that's likely to happen. The government's made its bed when it comes to the National insurance
0: rise. The biggest problem of all, of course, will be the soaring energy bit costs. Now, that's happening all around the world. We've even seen riots in Kazakhstan over energy costs. Uh, there is, uh, I gather, there's a grant the government can bring in warm homes discount, but that will hardly touch the sides of the increase for most families, which is being put at anywhere between 600 to 1,000 pounds a year.
1: Yeah, I mean the government definitely needs to look to provide targeted support, particularly for lower income households who we know from history and also from you know blindly obviously thinking about it are the ones that struggle most with a big rise energy bills. They don't have lots of other non-essential spending to cut back or savings to draw down on. So targeted support for low income households is the most important thing, although I don't think it's a case for just lower bills for everybody as well. But if you want to make targeted support for those poorer households. You can do that via the benefit system. That's the most efficient way to do it. But the government may be reluctant to do that. They've only just um, gone through the business of removing the £20 uplift to Universal Credit, so may not want to go back. There again, um, so the alternative is, as you say, to look at using the mechanism that we currently use for the Warm Homes Discount. This is a discount that. Happen directly through the energy companies onto the bills of some poorer households, but importantly, it's only some, and as you say, it's only for 140 pounds, and that is in contrast to bills that we think are going to be going up five times as much as that, maybe around 700 pounds in April. So, you can't just do the current Warm Homes discount. You'd have to put the policy through some pretty heavy surgery. That would have to make it a bigger payment for the another bigger payment, so maybe three, four hundred pounds taking place in April or uh may this year it would need to go to a much broader range of people so we need to cover all lower income households who are either poorer pensioners on pension credit or are in receipt of uh low income benefits. so we may be talking about eight and a half million households so much many more people than currently receive this payment and crucially we would need to make sure that it was the taxpayer the government that was picking up the bill for those reductions because at present the warm home discount scheme give some people a discount on their bill but increases everybody else's bills because that's how we fund the discount that goes to poorer households. So it's not a government scheme, but it basically, the legislation says you energy companies must give should give a discount to poorer pensioners and you can choose to give it to some working age, lower income households as well. But the cost of that will be funded by increasing everybody else's bills.
0: Two other things, if I could dwell on your time. VAT on energy bills. Now the Labour Party was calling for the the vat to be removed uh the prime minister rejected that in the commons last week he said it's it's a too much a one-size-fits-all solution but how much if people if the vat was to be cut would that save on the average um, energy bill Torsten?
1: it would be around 100 pounds i think is the simplest way to think about it the, um, for someone who's got an electricity and a gas bill of a kind of typical payment of around 1300 pounds old um, this year so before this rise the current rise comes in and takes bills up to 200 pounds so we're talking around 100 pounds so it's not nothing it's a significant amount of money but again the overall size of help that we're going to need to put in place for particularly the poorer
0: households is going to need to go well beyond that and just finally we know green taxes are now an integral part of our bill i think they range anywhere between 15 and 25 percent of our bill our green tax is designed to do our bit as we try to get close to net zero if they were to be removed completely, which would be difficult for a government that's just hosted the COP26 environmental conference, would that make a considerable saving on most people's bills?
1: Well, as you say, there are a significant number of levies within our um, bills. I think some Tory backbenchers who want to look at this as an easy way to kind of you know, show a bit of leg to the anti-green uh, lobby and get money off bills, they don't know enough about how these bills actually work because the what's coming through on... Energy bills at the moment are contractual obligations paying for a renewable investment that happened years ago. Uh, so the option isn't could you just stop paying these levies? The option is should the taxpayer pay these levies or should uh, it be done via energy bills? So we're all going to pay one way or the other. I think there actually probably is a case that it would be better done through our tax bills rather than through our energy bills. Then I would be surprised if the government is in a position to make that shift quickly although i think they are looking at it actually over a longer time period if they did then you could maybe reduce bills by say 160 pounds per household and that would cost in the region of four four and a half billion pounds from the taxpayer so this is really about how we pay for the cost of some of our renewable investments do we do it through the taxpayer or do we do it through our building
0: fascinating and um uh as i keep saying Torsten, politically um this i suspect is the biggest challenge for boris johnson's government absolutely. of the next yeah. of the next two or three years yeah
1: it's gonna be really tough for the next six months i think both for households paying their bills and for anyone doing british politics
0: absolutely that's Torsten bell who's chief executive of the resolution foundation whose report says 2022 is going to be the year of the squeeze the first human case of a deadly strain of bird flu in the uk has been detected in a person living in the southwest of England who lived with more than 100 ducks. Now, these ducks had become his living companions. They were cold by a team in hazmat suits, part of a wider cold. You've seen more than a million poultry cold so far. So what should we make of it? Should we be worried about it? We're already living with the uh, Omicron pandemic. Professor Ian Jones is a virologist at the University of Reading. Um, bird flu, Professor, did we know it was in our midst?
2: Yes, we did. In fact, there have been several um, reports dating back to maybe as early as November or October. This year appears to be quite a bad year. It's, It's always around at this time of year. It's brought by migrating waterfowl from the north who are coming south. As they land in the UK to take a breather, they distribute the virus to local birds and um, outbreaks are seen. The, the particular issue normally is just uh, the virus getting into commercial bird farms where they, they, they can cause huge, uh, huge damage but it's unusual to see a human case.
0: Uh, and I, I understand this current outbreak of bird flu is the largest recorded in Britain and already half a million been cold as part of efforts to control the virus. I wonder why we didn't know that or if we did know it perhaps it just got submerged under all the news about Omicron?
2: Yes I think it's the latter. I think as I say if you look you will find reports uh, principally down the west coast of the UK. It's also in Europe I should say it's not particular to the UK Um, and um, there are plenty of uh, reports on the DEFRA website and through the chief veterinary officer that this is a particularly bad year. So I think it's just been deluged by Covid coverage.
0: Am I right? It's the first human case in Britain, although it uh, although it has killed people in other parts of the world since it first emerged, I think, in the late 1990s.
2: Yes, that's correct. It's it's killed perhaps a third to a half of those who have become infected, um, but they've largely been uh, in Southeast Asia and China. Um, and as far as I know, this is the first case of transfer here in the UK.
0: How worried should people be listening to this? We're already trying to come to terms with Omicron. We think we're getting we're getting used to it. and We've been told we've got to learn to live with it. And the Prime Minister's carrying on with Plan B and not tied to restrictions. I appreciate any one person that we know of so far has died. But is there a potential here that this could get much worse in your view?
2: No, in a, in a single word. Uh, I think you have to remember that, in the case of Covid, we are now dealing with a human virus that is transmitting amongst human people. Um, in the case of the avian flu, this is a bird virus, it, it, that's its natural home. It is very difficult for it to cross to the human species. It does do it on occasion, as we've seen here, and as I've just uh, suggested for the individuals who've contracted it elsewhere in the world over the last 10 to 15 years. but. It's, it's not something that then spreads. And so unless there is any indication that the infection in this one individual uh, is in any way unusual, then I don't think it represents any sort of threat.
0: And what about um, chicken meat or eggs? Are they free from infection? Do we need to worry about that?
2: We don't need to worry about it. Um, as you just covered, the, um, the culling is extensive. And so if it is found... On a commercial farm, that would be a farm that's either distributing meat or, or eggs, then the birds are destroyed. So the opportunity for the virus to enter the food uh, system is simply not there. And even if it were to leak through, to be honest with you, under normal uh, handling conditions, and uh, certainly with cooking, there would be very, very little risk of any virus transfer.
0: Just finally, and I appreciate it's not your area, but this is catastrophic for the farmer who has the outbreak on their land. Do they get compensation from the government, or do they just have to um, face the music on their own?
2: I think there is some DEFRA uh, compensation, but uh, I think it's it's not simply a case of the compensation for the uh, for the birds lost. Of course, it's all the work that went into their rearing. Um, and the necessity of restocking and and getting the flock back up to size again so there's a huge disruption to the business um, which is the the main reason that avian flu causes uh, problems uh, in in the UK it's it's the threat is largely to the economies that depend on poultry and not to the individual's concerned.
0: Fascinating that's Professor Ian Jones who's a virologist at the University of Reading thanks so much for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk, forward slash subscribe to get access to our podcast videos, opinion pieces and much more. Once to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at ToryboyPierce. So the Prime Minister is uh, talking about introducing a massive £800 million scheme to pay farmers to rewild swathes of their land. The plan is meant to improve the environment, combat climate change and is part of the government's dividend they say since we've left the European Union. This was something they said they couldn't have done before. But it's not been met with universal acclaim by the farmers. I'm joined now by Tom Bradshaw, who is vice president of the National Farmers Union of England and Wales. If you could explain, Tom, first of all, um, what what do we mean by the expression rewilding the land?
3: Well, I, I guess that the most extreme rewilding the land is simply walking away from it. Stopping producing food and leaving it for nature.
0: Under this plan, um landowners will be paid to plant trees, restore wetlands and peatland bogs, seven hundred and forty one thousand acres of land. The government say it's the biggest farming reform in fifty years since we joined the old um European community or common market as it was then. Um why are farmers so opposed to it, Tom?
3: There's several different reasons. First of all, the, the detail is still lacking as to exactly what this is going to look, look like. So there's a lot of headlines that you've, been, you've picked up on there about the total amount of land, the 300,000 hectares, um, and the real wilding has grabbed the headline. We've been very clear that we want to deliver sustainable food production alongside biodiversity recovery, alongside environmental delivery. We're producing food to some of the highest standards in the world. And at the moment, that risk being undermined by the trade deals that the same government is putting in place. And that feels a real threat. And it feels like on one hand, we're being challenged to produce ever cheaper food by the trade deals. And then on the other hand, we're being asked to improve the standards, improve our environmental credentials and delivery uh, for biodiversity, which just seems a little bit of a juxtaposed policy.
0: This is because we're doing trade deals with countries like Australia, which means we may be getting Australian lamb or beef on our supermarket shelves much more easily, much more cheaply than we would have done before before we left the European Union.
3: That's exactly right. The trade deals with um, Australia and New Zealand, and you know, we know that they're negotiating with other countries around the world uh, as well. And some of the food produced there is produced using methods that we wouldn't be allowed to produce over here. Their livestock can be transported for 48 hours, whereas here it's eight hours and so there's many differences in the products that can be used and the technologies and that puts us at a competitive disadvantage and then we're also tasked with making sure that we're delivering for the environment at the same time
0: now as i understand it this 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 scheme would start in 2023 the plan is to fund 15 nature reserve projects uh, across the uk aren't these schemes voluntary so farmers don't have to take part unless they want to
3: well, that's the other challenge that we feel this policy um, you know, we need to detail off. We, we don't understand how it's going to work for tenant farms. And tenant farmers farm about a third of the land in the country. And so if they're currently tenants on some of this uh, land, which is going to go into these schemes voluntarily by the landowner, how will that work but for the tenant farmer who's currently producing food on those farms? Uh, and we haven't seen the level of detail there uh, to, to know whether there really is a way which it could work Um, As I say, for that critical sector, which is responsible for a large area of land management across the country.
0: So I'm clear the landowner um, could decide to take on board this scheme, take the money from the government and there, but compel the tenant farmer who's on their land to do it. Uh, which could, in, in fact, then impact on the work they're doing now, perhaps with sheep or beef or something, uh, and could adversely impact on their income? Is is that what you're saying?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, I guess that depending on the term of the tenancy, it may even be that the landlord no longer requires the tenant there or they don't feel that they need the tenant there to deliver the you know, the rewilding elements of the scheme. Right. So it may be that, that, those, that those people, those farmers, which are at the heart of community, may not may may no longer be required and suddenly that puts a huge pressure on those rural communities and um, to be able to provide near the schools and everything else that um, require people to be there at the heart of them uh, and if you strip the farmers out of those rural communities you've got to question what will, what will be left
0: when do you think you're going to get more details from the government uh, tom
3: well it's been a bit of a drip 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 over the last oh, 18 months really and what we would desperately like to see is Um, What the endpoint looks like, what is the overall ambition, and what's the policy detail that's going to get there? And then members will be able to make decisions as to whether they want to deliver for the environment. I mean, our core ambition is that we maintain domestic food production alongside uh, delivering for nature. That's something that we're really passionate about. We believe the two go hand in glove. When we get to truly sustainable production, we'll be delivering for the environment at the same time. And that's the sweet, sweet spot that we're really looking for. Uh, but at the moment, it's, it's a lack of detail. Uh, we have to make sure that the payment rates really are enough to incentivize these changes to agricultural practice that um, the government are talking about. And, uh, and that's how members will be infused to take part and make sure that we are able
0: to deliver all of the goals of the government. All right. Well, that's very interesting. I'm sure we'll be talking to you about this again in the future. That's Tom Bradshaw, who is the Vice President of the National Farmers Union. Thanks so much for joining us. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at @MelPlus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatwood joins me again. Always a pleasure to talk to him. Uh, cricket is going on down under. England get a century now Matt is that an England player gets a century, or have we actually managed to reach a hundred runs as a team because they didn't quite manage that in their last innings did they yes,
4: yes very good um, very good you've seen been boom, thinking boom. about that one for a while yeah no <laughs> actually a player has got a century. so remarkably on this ill-fated and uh, error riddled tour where everyone's been failing miserably and uh, the openers can't get a run and um Uh, There's been injuries, there's been poor selections, there's been fighting. Johnny Bairstow has given us a ray of sunshine with 103 not out overnight. So um, Ingham are 32 for four. As ever, the top order failed. Hamid now averages 10 on this tour, the opening batsman. Crawley was clean bowled again. Uh, And normally, obviously, we turn to Joe Root at that stage, but he failed. He fell for a duck. Milan was out for just three. So it was 32 for four when Johnny Bairstow and Ben Stokes came to the wicket. And Bairstow managed to smash uh, quite a quick counter-attacking 100. So he's 103 not out. So, finally, as I say, uh, a little bit of sunshine in what has been a terribly gloomy tour. Now, England are no, by no means in a position to win this Test match. They're still 158 runs behind Australia with just um, with just three wickets left. So, they're still very much up against it. But at least they've shown a bit of fight.
0: Yeah, is Bestow, will Bairstow still be at the crease when they come out again?
4: So he'll be at the crease tonight, yet yeah, 103 not out um, with uh, Jack Leach, who's there as well. So I don't, you know, I don't expect them to get many more because they're, they're, you know, the tail enders are batting with Johnny Bairstow now. Uh, but they could get, you know, they could chip away. And given that this is, there's only two days left of the test, they could be that they managed to avoid. If they can bat reasonably well and then bowl well, they could, they could avoid the five nil. It could be that they only list 4-0 or they go, they at least go to Hobart, only 3-0 down with one to play. So uh, I don't think they're in a position to win this test, but they could. They've given themselves a chance of not getting whitewashed.
0: Very good, very good. Is Bearstow the wicketkeeper?
4: Well, he's not actually. Joss Butler's the wicketkeeper, right. but Bearstow has kept wicket for England in the past.
0: Right, OK. Now, um, the tennis saga is the one that I think, it's the story of the week, Matt. I just love the idea of Novak Djokovic in that bog-standard detention hotel. I shouldn't think he set foot in a hotel like that since he was probably a 16-year-old junior. But it's his father who's ra- who's raising Kane on his behalf.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's, this story just keeps on giving. So, yeah, as you say, Novak holed up over the weekend in... Uh... The hotels which various people have described as bug ridden and the food being maggot infested. and uh, So, yeah, as you say, not the salubrious surroundings that he would be used to. Um, now, obviously, he's unable. He, he's in there without his bag, without his wallet. I mean, it really, it's an extraordinary situation for him to find himself in. I mean, you know, as far as we know, he's only got one, you know, the clothes he arrived in. Uh, So it's extraordinary. His father and his mother yesterday gave a press conference in Belgrade uh, saying some extraordinary things on his behalf. Uh, the quotes are things like Jesus was crucified and everything was done to him and he endured. He is still alive among us and they are trying to do the same to Movak in the same way. But do not underestimate him, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So comparing him to Jesus, saying they're trying to crucify our son,
0: they're really not helping his cause at all. <laughs> they should just absolutely <laughs> shut up.
4: Well, they're helping our cause because it's a superb story that keeps on giving. So, but I do agree. I do agree.
0: And I'm told if he if he'd gone in if he'd arrived in australia uh, a few weeks ago matt and got and submitted to the normal quarantine period when he landed he might have avoided all of this might off
4: the bragging uh twitter post that he put before he before yeah, he left obviously he got mistake. that didn't do uh, that didn't do him any favors uh and uh and yes and now he finds himself stuck in his hotel room but his parents are certainly fighting the fight
0: for him well um as they say with well, that one it's going to run and run uh, and just finally, um, in the world of football, Coutinho joins Villa. Is he the player? Is he the manager? He's the player, isn't he?
4: He's a Brazilian footballer who used to play for Liverpool. Was brilliant right. at Liverpool. Yeah, absolutely sensational for about um, three seasons, where he was, um, you know, one of the best players in the league. Really helped um, Liverpool um, get close to winning tit- winning the title, and was was absolutely superb. And then he he um, agitated for a move away to Barcelona. Liverpool sold him for £120 million, I think it was, around that figure. But he's never cut it since. He never, really, uh, he never really succeeded at Barcelona. They loaned him out to Bayern Munich, where he was OK. But he never really hit the heights again. And now he's back in England uh, on a loan deal with Aston Villa, whose manager, Steven Gerrard, he obviously played with when he was at Liverpool. So Gerrard will be hoping he gets the old Coutinho, the one that was at Liverpool with him rather than the one that's been at Barcelona for the last few years. But a very interesting move because this guy's obviously incredibly talented but lost his way a bit. So it'd be, it will be a, a remarkable achievement for Gerard if he can get him back on track.
0: Absolutely. And before I let you go, Matt, you know I always like you to make predictions. So what is your prediction of the score in the cup match of the round, the third round tonight? My home team, Swindon Town, at the county ground against the mighty Manchester City. Go on, you can give it to me. How many are we going to lose by?
4: No, I think it's going to be interesting. I think this has got uh, Cup upset written all over it. So I think it's going to be Swindon Town 0, Man City 3, which obviously will be a a huge uh, upset for all Swindon fans.
0: That's really cruel. (laughs) <laughs> you I'm enjoyed that, I'd didn't
4: you? I'd love to go for a Swindon win, but I can't. I think 3 to the away team on this occasion.
0: All right, that's Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatwood. He's got that request, though, from me. In the unlikely event, it goes to a draw, and there's a replay. He can send me to the Etihad Stadium for the first time in my life. I wouldn't have a clue what's going on, of course, and I can write a nice colour piece about Swindon boy comes back to the team.
4: Yes, indeed. We might lose pages that day, and it may not make it, but we'll try. <laughs>
0: So the cancel culture, we hear so much about it now that the distinguished American author Norman Mailer is the latest one to be caught up in it. Penguin Random House has pulled the plug on a project to republish an anthology of his works on what would have been the author's 100th birthday. The project was scrapped after a staff member objected to the title of one of Mailer's essays, it was a 1957 essay, The White Negro. Joining me now is the author and Professor Emeritus of Sociology at the University of Kent, Frank Ferrady. Professor, um, uh, what's your reaction to this? Uh, Norman Mailer is a great man of letters, but it seems even he isn't immune to this um, growing culture of cancelling authors.
5: Yeah, I'm really horrified by the way in which you have these um, grievance archaeologists digging up old books and essays And trying to rewrite them or or make them disappear given their own kind of values inclination in particular with norma miller because his essay the white negro is one of the most uh, highly publicized and discussed essays in the whole post second world war era it's a very important essay Uh, and doesn't matter what you think about it but he he does raise issues which were to become really important later on he basically talks about something very important, which was this new hipster figure uh, that kind of emerges as part of the countercultural moment, the hipster figure who embraces aspects of black culture, who calls into question the prevailing norms. And I think what's really paradoxical is that he is celebrating precisely those kinds of people who would have been sympathetic today to the kind of people that are trying to cancel him.
0: He, he, and I'm just looking at the history of him, Professor. He was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for both fiction and non-fiction and um, is regarded as an innovator in creative non-fiction. But this controversy could well overshadow all of that.
5: I don't think it will. I think you know we're living through a time where just about anybody from Chaucer to Shakespeare to Homer are being uh, challenged and cancelled on the grounds that people you know, who are involved in, you know, in promoting this horrible cancel culture don't like what they're saying, or they take uh, objection to the language they use. And I think that, you know, if you're going to cancel Mailer, you're going to have to cancel Philip Roth, you're going to have to cancel every great American author of the last century. You're going to have to cancel Western Western canon in effect. And in fact, you know, eventually you're going to have to go back to the Bible, which is, um, about as you know, as as violent or you know, as as kind of anti uh, cancel uh, you know, anti cancel culture as it gets. So, you know, we're faced with a with a challenge that is very powerful. It's got a lot of support, particularly in the publishing industry, and also in sections of the media. But I think, nevertheless, you know, unless you're going to uh, commit complete uh, Taliban-like cultural vandalism and get rid of the Western civilization effect, I don't think it's possible for this to uh, sort of carry on indefinitely without some kind of a
0: kickback. Uh, Mailer as well. Um, we we don't know what he'd think, but we we'd ha- we could have a good guess because according to his son, uh, John John Buffalo Mailer, he said his father had a wonderful relationship with Random House, really enjoyed it. And while this while this this um, anthology is now being picked up by uh, a smaller co- company, Skyhorse, which is known for championing writers who've been turned down, dare I say it, by publishing houses which perhaps go a bit woke, um, he would be very disappointed by it, wouldn't he, Mailer?
5: I think he would, although you have to recognise that a random house of today is nothing like the, the great random house of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. It's gone really woke in the sense that uh, the leading members of random house are, are very much scared of the younger generation of employees they've they've kind of brought in. Who uh, are continually demanding that this shouldn't be published, that should be retracted, that should be censored. So basically, we now have a publishing industry, of which Random House is very, very important, that has embraced uh, a kind of anti-literary and you know anti-sort uh, of humanistic kind of orientation, which goes completely against the, the grain of the kind of Random House that Mailer uh, had a good, good relationship with.
0: If Mela is um, cancelled in this way, um, who's next? Is anyone sacrosanct?
5: I don't think so. I think it's it's very interesting uh, that this this is a this kind of uh, cru- it's a moral crusade in a sense as its own imperative. It has got its own dynamic, and it's continually looking for new targets because uh, it it almost feeds on finding new forms of offence. And I think what's very important is that, although uh, it, you know, it, it targets people like Mailer, it, it's greatest and most destructive corrosive impact is on contemporary writers. So for example, the attacks on J.K. Rowling are very- I
0: was gonna mention that, are,
5: yeah. Are, are paradigmatic in this respect because you know, from their point of view, they need to take down Rowling because Rowling is a famous author. She's loved by you know, literally hundreds of millions of people all over the world. She, she's somebody who, unlike many other literary figures, hasn't backed down, hasn't apologized, hasn't rolled over, you know, sort of she stood firm. And, and from their point of view, it's absolutely essential that they cancel someone like that. Not just cancel, her, but essentially ostracize her from the literary world. I mean, that's basically their ambition. And I think what, they, what they're doing now is they're looking at other authors, other essays, other journalists, media personalities to humiliate in a similar kind of a way.
0: Yeah, I was going to say um, that there's, there's some some people within Random House are denying that um, it, this was been scrapped because of the white Negro. But as Michael Wolfe, who I think first let the cat out of the bag, said, why would they then have taken the collection away to somebody else to publish it if they hadn't been cancelled?
5: Exactly, because um, this collection of essays is, is really very, very important. It, it's studied by literature students throughout colleges and universities in the United States. It continues to have fairly decent sales even now you know almost uh, 60 70 years after the original publication so the idea that somehow it wasn't commercially viable or, or they were commercial not interested it doesn't make any sense at all I think it indicates just um, how cowardly random House has become I think that's a kind of slothful you know sort of uh, acquiescence to this pressure and you know, and you have to remember that the pressure that's emanating and 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 targeting towards random house It's not like Nazi Germany or Stalinist Russia very powerful backed up by force and police and everything else It's it's basically just relatively mild cultural pressure and all you got to do Is have somebody you know, so sort of say I don't like this name I'm offended and you've got a major institution like random house kind of rolling over and backing off
0: it's extraordinary. Um, that's Frank Ferrady. He's um, the professor emeritus of sociology at the University of Kent, and I can give the game away. He's writing a very in- distinguished piece for us in the Daily Mail in Saturday's paper, which I would look forward to reading too. So that's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at five pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pearce. This is the Andrew Pearce Show. I'll be back on Monday. Have yourselves a very good weekend and good night.